Hey folks, this is Micah here. Thanks so much for listening. We're about to jump into the conversation with Science Mike, but before we do, I wanted to remind you that you can always go to christiantranshumanistpodcast.com to download show notes for this and every other episode. We put a lot of work into these show notes, uh, including resources and links and all kinds of things like that, and we'd love for you to get some use out of that. At the same time, if you're looking to connect with other people like you who are interested in these sorts of subjects, I'd recommend checking out the Christian Transhumanist Association. That's christiantranshumanism.org. And we have Facebook groups, we have email lists, we have people who are looking for better answers at the cutting edges of science and religion. And we'd love for you to join us. So again, it's christiantranshumanistpodcast.com and christiantranshumanism.org. And hope to connect with you somewhere down the road, somewhere on the internet. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the conversation. Well, this is the Christian Transhumanist Podcast. I'm Micah Redding, and I'm here with Mike McCarg, who's the host of Ask Science Mike, the co-host of the Liturgist Podcast, and the author of the new book, Finding God in the Waves, How I Lost My Faith and Found It Again Through Science. Mike, thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me. Really excited. Yeah, so I was, uh, I've been reading your book, and I um, just realized that we actually um, were in the same exact movie scene together. Uh, oh, yes, so I, I, I just read this um, uh, a little bit ago, and I went and looked up um, the, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I do. The, the movie Blue Like Jazz. Um, and and you and I were both extras in this this movie, and I've actually talked about this recently. But I, um, so I went and looked because I I was flipping through your book, and I, and it says it talks about you being an extra in this scene, and I was like, no, no, no. And so I went and looked, and sure enough, you're right there on the front row, um, and um, as like the most surreal uh, kind of scene is unfolding. Um, there's a, a cross pinata being lowered. There's, I don't know. It's it's a bizarre scene. And I'm, I think I'm like a pew behind you and and off to the left. Um, so I I, uh, I have to go back and rewatch it. Yeah, now. That's this crazy. is. I I had never. I've seen that uh, over and over because every time. Um, that comes up in conversation, you know, my friends will, will send this to me or will play it or something like that. And, uh, but I've never noticed you're right there front and center. It's amazing. Like how, (laughs) how your brain can like work around stuff. Of course I'm zooming in for myself, you know, I'm looking for myself in that scene. Right. Well, I look a lot different back then too. That was, uh, pretty much my most scale tipping, uh, stature of my whole life. (laughs) Well, that was yeah, that was several several years ago. I don't remember when that was, but that but Blue Like Jazz was filming um, and came to Nashville and was shooting this this scene, um, and uh, yeah, so we're we're the the uh, church members in the in the audience of this scene, and yeah. that means your bacon number is two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. I I hadn't even thought about that. Wow. So that's so, huh? Yeah, my my whole my whole uh, construction. Kevin Bacon was uh, in Jane Mansfield's car, 
<laughs> with the lead in Blue Light Jazz. And then we're in a movie with him, Bacon Number Two. <laughs> oh, man. That's awesome. <laughs> well, I, and I wouldn't have even really thought through that um, ever. So thanks for uh, thanks. Well, for I that specialize gift, in obscure pieces of information <laughs> and data points. So glad I could... Uh, that's really awesome. nerd up your show today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. Although, I mean, the Christian transhumanist podcast, that's... We're already pretty tipping the nerd scale. Pretty here. in the nerd scale yeah, just yeah. right out of the gate. <laughs> that's so true. Um, so let's let's talk about your book. So um, your book is called Finding God in the Waves, How I Lost My Faith and Found It Again Through Science. So somebody asked me, um, you know, ha- have you finally found the elusive scientific proof of the existence of God or or what is your book about it's definitely not the elusive scientific proof for God (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, I think there's a reason it's called finding God in the waves not I found God in the waves that that verb implies a continuing action yeah Um, now I do in the book I talk about ideas about God that are more or less scientifically plausible. Mm-hmm. And the, the really the meat of the book, um, especially as you get into the second half of it, is that when we talk about God as a society, we tend to assume that everyone is using the same meaning for the word God. And what I found is quite the opposite. Almost never are any two people meaning the same thing when they use that word God. It's an incredibly loaded term uh, that's universally recognized but not uh, universally shared in meaning or context. And so as I, in in my story and my experience, had an encounter with God after I'd become an atheist and didn't believe in God anymore, as I searched for what that encounter meant— I had to start with, well, who or what is God in the first place? And that's when I kind of encountered this difference, that when Christians and atheists and even different denominations of Christians and um, Muslims and and different people of faith, especially when you compare Eastern and Western notions of God, uh, these are radically different ideas that just happen to use the same term. Hmm. Yeah, so... You're mentioning kind of your your story there. Um, your you lost your faith and then and then kind of found it again. And um, what what exactly for 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 listeners who aren't familiar with your story, what is that? Because it's it's pretty. You've got a, a lot of ups and downs <laughs> along the way. And I think I first um, heard uh, your story through um, the Pete Holmes show. Yeah, that's a real common it. entry point yeah, in my work. Right. <laughs> and um, uh, but you you've been a a pretty committed Christian. You've been a uh, a Southern Baptist deacon, um, an atheist, all, all kinds of things. What what does that trajectory What does that trajectory look like for you? Uh, much like it sounds, I grew up in the <laughs> Southern Baptist tradition and liked it. I liked evangelicalism. I liked the certainty it gives you about the world and about the nature of the world and the nature of God. I liked the way that uh, the evangelical church 
kind of trains you uh, into what it's like to be uh, a contributing member of society, what it's like to be a good husband, a good father, what it's like to exist in the context of community. Um, so despite maybe some of the, the critiques I offer evangelicalism in the book, I hope it comes across that I have a great affection for what I learned in um, my many, many years, 30 <laughs> years, being a conservative evangelical. Uh, but the problem was that when I encountered ideas and situations outside of the expectations and assumptions of kind of the box that evangelicalism sits in, because it's all self-referential and it's all, you know, logically self-contained, when you get something that exists outside, for a lot of people, that house of cards falls down quickly. So even though, like, for example, um, evangelicals have some of the lowest defection rates of any faith in America right now, they also produce the greatest number of atheists. So when people from more moderate or, or mainline uh, faiths have faith transitions, they tend to become a different you know, denomination of Christian, or they tend to become spiritual, not religion, mm-hmm. religious. But people who leave evangelicalism tend to become atheists, hmm. but really as far as you can go from one end of the spectrum to the other. And that's exactly what happened to me. Um, my, my dad had an affair and, uh, and left my mom, and he was a minister at our church. And I went looking to the Bible for answers and instead found a lot of questions that made me slowly take apart everything I knew about God until there was nothing left. So you ended up as as an atheist by uh, studying the Bible, actually. In More than ways. anything else, studying the Bible made me an atheist. Yeah, yeah. And um, and I didn't approach the Bible wanting to tear it down. I approached the Bible because I trusted it to have answers and to tell me about God's will, God's plan, God's insights about living. Right. And then, and then, in that experience of of becoming an atheist, um, that was not a that was not a smooth transition, right? You don't just wake up one day and you're an atheist, and now the the everything in your world is different, right? There's a lot of fallout to that experience. There is, like it. First of all, it, it feels sudden, but it takes months, months, months or years even, of progressive experiences uh, to lose your image of God, your ideas about God. They're very robust in the mind when we study them scientifically. It's a set of interrelated beliefs along with lived experiences and social identity that's actually really hard to take apart. Mm-hmm. It's the reason you know a lot of atheists say, well, how? why can, is it I can present all this evidence to a Christian and they're not convinced. It's because belief in God is not just an acceptance of different fact statements. It's much more neurologically complex and sophisticated than that. Yeah. But in my case, eventually uh, it did happen, and my God construct fell apart, and I was left with no belief. And that left me feeling very frightened and very vulnerable because I was a Sunday school teacher and a deacon, and I was married to a Baptist woman. I had Baptist children in a Baptist family, and I worried that I would be shunned or ostracized if I 
shared how I felt. Now, not because my friends and family were bad people. Their natural response would be to try to help me back to the faith, to proselytize to me, to, to counsel me. And I didn't feel like they had anything to share that I hadn't already researched myself. So I would have a rebuttal for anything they would have to say about why I should believe in God, which would then make me look like you know a danger to mm-hmm. their faith and to faith of others. And then there would be this very natural, uh, organic, not intentional shunning and um, basically excommunication of me by the people I cared about the most, mm-hmm. uh, which is a really scary thing. I think a lot of people, especially people who grow up in more conservative uh, traditions of Christianity, when they start to experience doubts, it's a very lonely, isolating process because you're afraid to talk with the people you know best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think for for a lot of people, um, the impulse is to um, is to primarily kind of fear the the personal consequences, the consequences to to themselves and so forth from that social isolation. But I think for you, you um, experienced that. Um, and I, I think also experienced this fear for everyone around you, for you, uh, for hurting everyone around you. And that kind of led you into a, a different sort of reaction to this, didn't it? Yeah. I just decided to go secret agent on everybody. Um, I just pretended to be a Christian when I was not mm-hmm. quite effectively for, for two years. <laughs> and yeah. So how did like how does that work because you know as a um you know the kind of stereotype atheist uh is someone who thinks that religion is harmful and that kind of stuff but as a but as an atheist you were actually working to uphold um the faith of others as much as possible yeah well i mean first of all the the great mistake to many people make when talking about atheists is to assume that they're you know homogeneous bunch sure but there's just as much diversity in thought among atheists as there are among Christians or even people of faith. Mm-hmm. And most atheists uh, aren't anti-religion. Most atheists just want to be left alone by religion. Um, now, there are some people, Richard Dawkins would be the most famous example, who believe that faith fundamentally is harmful or bad for humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, I was never in that camp as an atheist. I'd seen the ways that faith could benefit people's lives. But I also saw the ways that faith was a destructive force that led to the marginalization or oppression of people uh, because a dominant group thought they were acting in accordance with God's will. So my goal was not to strip people of their religion, but instead to moderate it to something more palatable to humanism. So when I taught Sunday school lessons, I emphasized, you know, the care for the poor and the orphan and the widow, but I didn't talk a lot about eternal damnation or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of the 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 less um acceptable in a modern context theological positions that Christianity holds. Mm-hmm. And I just tried to use people's faith as something that could help them live happier, more peaceful lives and do more good in the world. 
Yeah, so so that so you we go through this process of of kind of being an atheist undercover trying to use religion um for for good to the extent that that you can trying to uphold other people's faith and then um and then finally you kind of uh somewhere along the line uh come out of the closet on that is that is that right like what does that look like yes completely true um I did it well, but you can't constantly pretend to believe something you don't. Mm -hmm. It's fatiguing, and as ideas become less new and more integrated into your identity, they actually become harder to hide. Mm. Um, so I would make little tells without not without realizing it. Mm -hmm. And my wife knows me better than I know myself, and she figured out something was wrong and confronted me. And... Um, that was that. Uh, my secret was out. Now, she didn't tell the world. She was just as afraid of the ramifications as I was, and I convinced her that I could play the part of a Christian very convincingly. <laughs> so she only told my mom. Um, but that's a pretty tough situation for a guy when your wife and your mother uh, share a common concern. Right. Um, but we still, the, we, the three of us kind of kept it under the wraps. I didn't actually come out publicly about how I felt um, until after I kind of came back to uh, mm. a more nebulous faith. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, this whole time, anytime I'm on the Internet, anytime I'm anon anonymous, I'm full atheist, right? There was no yeah. pretense in those, in those contexts. And often when I would travel to different cities for events... Uh, if the topic would veer to religion, I would say that I had none. Kind of trying it on, see how it felt. Yeah. Um, but no, I didn't. I didn't actually tell the world until I kind of had found God again. Mm -hmm. So it's just a really yeah. odd way to go about it. <laughs> well, it seems like you've you kind of experienced the consequences of of these things almost delayed, so that when you um, you talk about uh, when you became a, an atheist undercover, you became much better as a uh, Bible class teacher and, and so forth. And then when you um, had uh, kind of become, uh, you know, when you kind of come back to your kind of more nebulous faith, then I, I think that's when, uh, if I recall correctly, your, your relationship with your church started to break down, actually. Yes, absolutely. That's that's when the wheels came off at church. Now, part of that is is really legitimate. If someone you trust says, "Oh, by the way, I've been just lying to you about something important for two years," yeah, I have a lot of empathy for the kind of confusion and shock I put my friends and family, especially my church family, into. Um, and, it, you know, here it is, it's years later, mm -hmm. and it's still awkward when I run into my more conservative friends around town. Hmm. Um, it's the thing that's always in the room, because um, here I am, this, you know, <laughs> what, whatever I am, <laughs> it's not something that Southern Baptists are especially comfortable with, or many Southern Baptists are very comfortable with. Yeah. And... Um, 
And I just did it weird. I started talking about uh, ways my beliefs had changed before I went to the core issue of, oh, by the way, I didn't believe in God for a while. Yeah. So I started talking about marriage equality and, you know, creationism long before I talked about atheism. And if I would have changed that order, uh, the process probably would have been less fractitious, hmm. less um, fraught with difficulty for myself and for my church family. Um, hmm. And, you know, the thing was, I was never like chased out of my church with torches and pitchforks. There was no witch trial. Um, people were generally supportive, but also very confused. Um, and a lot of people did ask that I be removed from leadership at the church, mm-hmm. which is something I should have done immediately. I had this misplaced notion that by staying in leadership, I was kind of standing in the gap for people in my church who faced out themselves. But really, all I did was create a lot of controversy. If I if I could go back and do it again, I would have stepped down before I said anything, hmm. and uh, and did what I could to to preserve a, a healthier environment in that church. Yeah. So let's talk about you know you, you've you've got this experience of of transitioning, um, going through several different transitions in your your faith. Um, and how that kind of impacted your community, but um, but you did it with your um, your marriage intact, and um, how how does that work in relationships, or how should it work in relationships when people are going through um, through faith transitions? Because I think that's so incredibly um, you know deep <laughs> deeply connected to to who we are and how our relationships work. Um, I think that can be one of the most difficult things we face. I think true intimacy lies on the other side of honesty. Hmm. And in American culture, we're trained to posture. And especially men are trained to compartmentalize. You know, for all the kind of really negative ramifications that what I would uh, call a system called patriarchy has Mm -hmm. for people in our society, um, it does teach women to be vulnerable with each other. Now, it does this by saying, you know, you're weak emotionally or whatever subtext that is. Uh, But this idea that men have to be um, kind of these independent, freestanding entities is really, really a harmful idea. And I think one way to have a healthy faith transition in a relational context is in your relationship to practice honesty and vulnerability just as soon as possible, ideally before you get married, if not as soon as you get married, if not this afternoon when you see your spouse again. Because as difficult as it was, and it was difficult, I mean, our, it was the toughest time in our marriage, the, the way my bond with my wife has been strengthened and where I'm no longer afraid to share difficult things with her, and she's not afraid to share difficult things with me, um, has created a really dramatically closer marriage, much more intimacy, and a stronger marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that the 
it can go two ways. And the difference is whether you've made a decision that you're going to do life together or not. If you've got like an invoice with a bill of goods when you got married and you have a lot of deliverables on it, you expect this person to do this and this and this and this and believe this and this and this and this, then as people change, of course, that becomes something that can lead to divorce or the, you know, the breaking of a relationship. But if instead you've made a commitment to journey through life together and enjoy each other in the process, that creates something that's much more resilient. So while our faith was at first, not our faith, our marriage was built on the idea of a shared faith experience, um, today our marriage is based on a shared life experience. Mm -hmm. And that can include changes in faith and belief. Mm-hmm. So a- after having gone through this transition, you did end up back with a um, a different sort of faith. Um, can you describe wh- what that actually is, or what that what's kind of the constituent elements of of that new kind of faith is for you? I call myself a empiricist. Christian mystic, (laughs) which are some pretty contradictory ideas. Um, But I'm an empiricist because I believe what I have evidence for. Mm -hmm. I place confidence in beliefs that I I can demonstrate some evidence for. I'm a Christian because I've decided to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ as a guiding force in my life. And I'm a mystic because I believe that it's probably impossible to precisely define God or precisely know God in factual terms. And those things all seem contradictory, but they are not. Um, Empirical data shows me that my belief in a loving God and my practice of faith is really good for my brain and good for the way I relate to other people Mm. and good for society at large. So I have an empirical foundation for the faith. And then the experiences I have in my faith, these mystical moments mean I come to some knowledge of God by loving God. And it's not a knowledge I can put into words. And again, here empiricism validates these claims because when we brain scan people who really deeply believe in God, uh, we find that when you use the word God and scan someone's brain, what you see looks much more like a feeling and an experience than language or ideas. Hmm. And that means brain science is validating this idea that the mystics have said forever that it's, it's kind of a folly to try to define God. Um, but you can know God simply by sitting in God's presence. And that's how my faith is based. My faith is based on, you know, the humanistic ideas of addressing human need and suffering, uh, but also on, uh, you know, Christian history and and teaching about the ways in which we do that. Yeah, so one of the things that has been... Which is why I've also called myself a Christian humanist, by the way, which is a really nice tie-in for your show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get very close. I, if I can persuade you somewhere along the line to to move, to add an, a one syllable, then we've got it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, w- one of the things that, that has been um, 
influential on me that that you've written is uh, called the Axioms of Faith, and um, it kind of it's one of the inspirations for a, a series of essays I wrote called um, Minimum Viable Theology. And oh, I love the term already. <laughs> so um, maybe can you explain the axioms of faith and, and what that really is? Sure. First of all, uh, do you have the uh, hard copy or the, the galley? Um, oh, yeah, I, have, I do have the hard copy, mm-hmm. I think. On two, page 255, I have the most recent and up-to-date version of my axioms. Oh, okay. Uh, so they're, they're in there as a complete list. That's a little yeah. bonus in the book. Okay. So I had this experience with God that was beautiful and moving and uh, frankly unbelievable for many people who hear it. And it didn't tell me anything at all about God. (laughs) And as I got some distance from the experience, both temporally and spatially, a few days passed, I flew home. I really started to doubt what I'd experienced. I even got a CAT scan to see if there was maybe Mm. something wrong with my brain. And um, there wasn't. Not that we can see on a CAT scan. And... I just felt this corrosive skepticism towards my own lived experience. Mm. And a friend of mine uh, named Corey Pitts, who's actually in the book, started taking me through different ways of studying the Bible and different ways of putting verses in context because he understood I had so much criticism about the Bible and its content. Mm -hmm. And one thing I, I learned about was this rabbinical idea of putting a fence around the Torah Mm-hmm. where if there's some precept in the Torah that is looks important to God, they create kind of behavioral restrictions that make sure you never get close to the real issue. That's where like really deep rabbinical teachings that seem strange and absurd about you can't you know flip a light switch on the Torah uh, uh, or on on the Sabbath, that comes from this idea of putting a fence around the Torah. Yeah. So I thought, is there a way for me to put a fence around my ideas about God is there anything I can prove about God scientifically that my doubt can't erode? So that's why I started studying cosmology and astrophysics. That's why I started studying uh, neuro- neuroscience and ultimately neurotheology to find ideas about God that the most skilled atheist could not take apart. Now they could say, well, why would you use the word God for that? I would call that the universe or I would call that whatever. Uh, but it gave me some foundation to stand on while I explored my faith. And my vision was to create these axioms and continually update them as I learned more. And what I found was, in terms of proving what you can prove about God, I couldn't get much further than my first couple of drafts. Um, so the, the purpose of the axioms is not meant to be some belief statement. Mm-hmm. It's not to be the foundation of a religion or a Christian theology. It's really meant to be a stepping stone to give someone the confidence they're not wasting their time in faith practice and faith expression so that then they can encounter the mystery of faith, the things that happen through experience and through uh, time invested in knowing God. Uh, so they're, you know, they're, not a, they're not a doctrinal statement. They're not a... You know, a, a a creed, mm-hmm. they're a brain hack that satisfies the prefrontal cortex enough 
that it will allow the emotional centers of the brain to experience God. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's a real nerdy sentence right there. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, it, but it's it's great though. It's it's a great uh, a great way to kind of step into these things, particularly for people who um, are maybe maybe kind of curious ab- about religion. You know, like uh, um, hopefully curious, but who can't quite just jump in um, uh, full full force. Um, and well, it's funny. I never meant them for anyone else. Yeah. I wrote them. They were specifically for me. Uh, I met Michael Gunger at a party years ago. He told me he didn't believe in God anymore. His experience was remarkably similar to mine. So I told him about my axioms, and they just like hmm. lit him up. And then he blogged about them. Hmm. And the next thing I know, these axioms were like the most known thing I'd ever done. Uh, and when I wrote the book, I actually didn't include the axioms in them. And my editor said, you got to put your axioms in. I was like, but they're so, they're so weird. You know what I mean? They're not even like if someone hears the word axiom, they might think I'm making a logical argument. I'm using this in a much more conversational way mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, more of a philosophical axiom than a logical one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but they said they've got to go in there. And I've just been, I have been blown away. Still, I mean, I wrote a post about them years ago, yeah. and that post still gets three to five hundred people a day reading it. Hmm. Um, and I, that of anything that's happened in my life, one of the most curious, and I can't get my head around them, is is the idea that these axioms have become so popular. <laughs> well, so. Yeah, let me, so as an example, uh, let me read the one about prayer. Um, It says, prayer is at least a form of meditation that encourages the development of healthy brain tissue that reduces stress and that can connect us to God. Even if that is a comprehensive definition of prayer, the health and psychological benefits of prayer justify the discipline. So this is kind of, this is kind of the format of these, like, that we take this this spiritual practice and we say you know this is at least um and and even if it's not more than that we know that it's beneficial um and and that's kind of a that kind of goes to uh, a lot of the stuff you talk about which you've talked about um the the positive impacts of of faith on the brain right so this is this is something that, uh, like you mentioned, kind of contrast with Dawkins' perspective, which says that religion is a harmful thing. But you're saying religion actually has a lot of of benefits to us. So, how can that? Where where is that difference of opinion coming from? Defining terms differently. Hmm. Dawkins refuses to admit that there is anything other than authoritarian conservative fundamentalism and Dawkins argument is that the non-fundamentalist non-authoritarians expression of religion enable the worst kinds and I just don't think Hmm. it's a it's an interesting rhetorical argument Mm -hmm. I don't see the data there Mm -hmm. in any discipline sociology neuroscience however you dice it um it doesn't seem to be true. Um, I don't know of 
any more ardent critics of Westboro Baptist Church than my Southern Baptist friends (laughs) who resent their use of the word Baptist, right? Yeah. Um, So it's a failure. So, So skepticism has offered a really necessary, essential critique to religion because religion has this potential always to become authoritarian, authoritarian where the needs of the organization and the perpetuation of the organization are more important than the needs of the members who make up that organization and certainly more than people who aren't in the organization at all. Mm -hmm. That kind of authoritarian streak can lead to the Crusades. It can lead to 9-11. It can lead to you know, covering up pedophilia by priests. All those things are authoritarianism in play. Uh, But there has been a tremendous movement in American religion, especially since the 60s, away from authoritarian expressions of faith. Mm -hmm. Um, People are wary of authoritarianism today, especially a group we would call millennials, they're aware of authoritarianism everywhere, not just in faith and government and, and corporations and any corridor you find. Uh, it's a very anti-authoritarian generation. And that's the critique. Uh, when you take authoritarianism out of faith and when you take measures to keep authoritarianism from ruining faith, you find something that makes people happier, healthier, more generous, more willing to to take risks on others' behalves, even if they don't know them, less xenophobic, more embracing of the other. By pretty much any measure you could use, you find this becomes a beneficial force in people's lives. And again, this isn't my opinion. This is the result of looking at and studying uh, scientific research and peer-reviewed studies. Yeah, you've... um... So as as transhumanists, um, we'll take this from the kind of new tropics uh, angle, right? So, um, but you've you've said there are um, three kind of proven ways to uh, increase your your brain power, or make yourself smarter, or make your brain uh, more capable. Um, and uh, if I if I got this right, uh, it's exercise, reading, and prayer. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways to, to make your brain more healthy, uh, but those are three of the most powerful mm-hmm. in terms of the time investment for what you get back. Uh, it's really hard to match physical exercise, reading, or prayer. It's benefits to the brain. Hmm. So, yeah, so that that's that's really interesting. And which, uh, by the way, like an atheist like Sam Harris, yeah, who's really into meditation and yeah. catch, catches a lot of flack for it. It's because he understands the brain and he's seen the research and he's saying, no, look, if we abandon some of these practices completely, it's in some ways detrimental not only to our lived experiences but to the way our brains develop. Yeah. Uh, Sam's got a book called Waking Up where he really goes in you know, deeply into how skepticism is losing some essential components of religious expression. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's very interesting. I, I definitely see that in the you know the kind of secularist uh, transhumanism, um, which you know tends to be very very heavy into um, the kind of science and technology as ways to extend um, human abilities and so forth. 
but tends to lose um, some of these things that uh, that human society has been doing for a long time that we've proven <laughs> to be uh, at least in the context of communities to to be effective ways to actually um, to build you know um, stronger civilization to build a better society to make us better as humans mm. so uh, that and that's kind of that's very similar to kind of the um, sort certain aspects of like the new atheism I think um, so it's it's interesting to see people like Sam Harris who um, who recognize that there are things that get lost in that process so um, how do we so you know kind of going going back through this the 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 process that you've been on um, that you know brings brings you back to to having to reconsider a lot of these subjects um, how, how do we read the Bible in the age of science I don't know that there's any one way um, you know I think there's a there's a a spread of techniques and approaches that are increasingly palatable to accepting modern research. Uh, and the tension lies a couple places. One is when the Bible speaks to historical or scientific information and can be in conflict. And then sort of uh, what does anthropology have to tell us about the formation of the Bible, about its authors, its process, and you're seeing different Christian scholars take different approaches to do that. Some people maintain like a really high view of Scripture while still accommodating anthropological and scientific and historical insights. I think someone like N.T. Wright would really demonstrate that. It's obviously, N.T. Wright has a very, 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 very traditional Orthodox theology, uh, but has the accommodation for, well, no, this author was this person, and uh, well, no, of course, Genesis reflects this because, right? Mm -hmm. uh, then you have someone like uh, Pete Enns, who still has a very high view of the Bible, still a, an Orthodox Christian, um, but uh, works hard to emphasize the human nature of the Bible. I think Rob Bell would be in that camp as well. Um, and then you have people who are scientists who aren't people of faith who say, well, well people wrote this book and it's just kind of a historical curiosity, and I'm kind of in the middle point between Pete Enns and, and, and an atheist. <laughs> so the way I view the Bible that frees it up tremendously is to look at this document as a completely human-authored library of books about God. It was edited by people over time. They had their own purposes. So you had authors speaking to specific audiences with specific agendas, then you had editors come along with different agendas who modified the text. Then you had people who sort of canonized the text, and that was another process that had individual agendas and perspectives and political pressures. And at the end, you get this collection of works produced by the church about God. And when I view the Bible that way, I don't expect the Bible to have any unique historical insights over other ancient forms of literature. I don't expect the Bible to, you know, perfectly articulate geometry or, or particle physics or cosmology because of the time it was written and who it was written by. What I look to the Bible for is to understand 
how people trying to serve the same God that I tried to serve understood that God, went through their journey of faith. I want to hear their stories and what I can learn from them. And in that way, I have found the Bible to be more inspiring and more influential over my life than it has ever been. But at the same time, I don't have to try to paint over the rough spots. I don't have to pretend that the Bible doesn't, in many cases, speak positively about slavery. I don't have to pretend that the Bible doesn't often have a, a very violent um, approach to, to conflict, especially um, you know, inter-community violence, because those were historical norms at the time. That was how those authors understood a blessing of God was to have territory and to conquer their enemies. And so I see a reflection of not only my hopes and dreams, uh, but a warning of who I can be if I'm not careful in the pages of the scriptures. So this, this is for you part of a kind of recontextualization of a lot of these elements, right? So recontextualizing where the scriptures fall and what role they play and so forth. And I think what strikes me is is that you you're doing a lot of recontextualization with the way you think about a lot of things, right? Um, what it it sounds like there are a lot of people going through that process. What do you think is the future of that? What comes out of this process? What what does faith look like on uh, on the other side of of whatever this kind of transition is? Well, I think one of the most powerful ways to get made fun of by people 100 years from now is to try to predict <laughs> things that will happen 100 years from now. Right. I think there's many, many people far smarter than I am who are the brunt of a joke in a PowerPoint presentation or an NPR segment because they made a prediction. Right. Uh, but I would say faith in the West is becoming less institutional. Um, you know, Europe kind of secularized, but now we're seeing two reactions to that. One is a, a renewed rise of fundamentalism in both Christianity and Islam in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're also seeing more people move into this personalized, non-specific faith expression. Um, and I think that's that's where America is headed to. The, the no religious affiliation is the fastest growing faith in America. It's becoming a significant, significant block of the country. Um, and the growth of atheism does not uh, keep up with the growth of no religious affiliation. Hmm. Um, and I think, as it has in the past, the church will adapt to that new context. I really do. Um, if you look at the history of our faith, it is the retelling of a story for different contexts. And that story uh, is the Exodus. Um, that, that cycle, uh, the Exodus gets retold and retold and retold in different contexts, for, you know, first in, in, in the exilic context, uh, and then later it gets revisited by uh, the prophets that kind of close out the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes and basically retells that Exodus story. Um, and then Paul comes along and recontextualizes Jesus for non-Gentiles, 
for a new context. And then the church retells that story, uh, especially after, you know, Rome kind of crushes um, Israel under its heel in AD 70. Mm -hmm. And you just see over and over the Reformation, all these movements are a recontextualization of that story, that way of relating to God for each era. And I just think we're in the middle of one of those right now. And as refreshing as it is for many people right now who are finding new freedom and new intimacy with God, I don't know if it's our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren, uh, they'll find it to be the new oppression that they have to cast off and make the new thing that works for their time. <laughs> so so would you say, because uh, there's different kind of... Um, uh, I thought that was really clever. So if, if, you're, if your yeah. pushback is too thoughtful, just <laughs> don't take my illusion from me. <laughs> no, I like it. No. I, so I'm, I'm uh, wondering if, you know, it, there's, there's a space of people who are saying, okay, the, the world is becoming um, more secular and it will just continue that way until we're all just secular and, um, and atheist. Um, and then there's um, other people who are saying, okay, well, we've, we've seen some growths in, in some kinds of secularism, but we've also seen um, growths in, in fundamentalism. So we're not actually moving uh, beyond religion. And there's, there's all kinds of different ways of analyzing that trajectory. Where do you think, or where, where would your kind of uh, view of things fall in that? The globe is not becoming more secular at all globally that's just not true now if you talk about the west mm -hmm. it's different mm -hmm. um but if you look at um uh, post evangelicals if you look at no religious affiliation it's not that they've become secular it's that they've refused to acknowledge a boundary anymore mm. uh, one of the most powerful spiritual records I've heard recently is Coloring Book by Chance the Rapper. Hmm. Um, that is a, a piece that speaks intimately of faith, uh, the struggle of people of color in America, um, and, and culture at large. This is a work that um, makes allusions to, to Jesus and Harry Potter hmm. uh, and hip-hop culture. And I think it's emblematic of where we and more and more, I, that's what I'm saying. Sort of as the church has failed to recontextualize this story because of this movement towards really fundamentalism in America that started in the 1940s, um, the rocks have started to cry out in America. Hmm. Uh, Hollywood and 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 Los Angeles and Nashville um, and New York have picked up where the church has failed and. The idea of a longing for God, a need for reconciliation. Like I, I don't mean to mention Chance again, but he has this line that I think is maybe one of those powerful theological implications for modern America I've ever heard when he says, I'm a force to be reconciled hmm. instead of a force to be reckoned with. That's a teaching we need. Hmm. Here we are, people uh, with power in a larger American context, or even someone like Chance who is in a, a relatively marginalized people group, but has kind of through this hustle that is is elevated in hip hop culture become successful. He's he's got a force. He's a power now. But instead of saying he's a force to be reckoned with, he says he's a force to be 
reconciled. Hmm. And if that doesn't kind of get your pulse moving, wow. uh, now is that is that secular or is it sacred? That is a hundred percent both. That record. And I think it's not that we're becoming more secular. I think it's that wisely a generation has decided to knock that wall down. Hmm. Yeah. That, I just made all that up. So <laughs> that's not in the book. <laughs> it's good. It's good. <laughs> that's, um, yeah, that's so great. The, you know, what, what you're kind of saying that, that we will have to, you know, the, the church will adapt and retell its stories just as it has. And sometimes that will, will come in the form of, of, like you say, the, the rocks crying out, the, this religion showing up in, in places where we don't typically expect it. Right. Right. Um, and I, I think that's, I think that is such a powerful, um, powerful thing. Um, I mean, look at all the Jesus movies that like the church pumps out and are just terrible art. (laughs) And then for the flaws it had, you know, especially around minority representation or uh, depiction of women, a movie like Last Days of the Desert Mm -hmm. with Ewan McGregor, directed by Rodrigo Garcia, is this powerful, powerful film that did a deeper exploration of the humanity of Jesus and what it would mean to be a human who was incarnate of God than any previous work in the modern era. Yeah. yeah, it's it, not a thing. The divide is not a thing. Yeah, it's there, there's something there's something powerful there about the uh, ability of someone outside of a certain context to to see um, what that context really is about or what's really there. And they're not outside the context. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, the movement towards an individualistic expression or understanding of faith that came with evangelicalism was amazing in that it made God intimate and personal, mm-hmm. but it, it denied or de-emphasized this essential understanding that we relate to God communally. Mm-hmm. And so culture has decided to let go of the baggage of the oppressive sides of faith, but say, listen, there's no way to deny that the West and, and I have been influenced by this story and this narrative. Yeah. Um, and I just, I think it's lovely. Yeah. Well, well, before I, before I let you, um, uh, get away here, I gotta, I gotta take the opportunity to throw some, some transhumanist questions at you. Um, so, um, I've heard you talk about, um, artificial intelligence before what's your what's your take on that and the dangers or or promises or or whatever wow how long do we have (laughs) we have as long as you want oh wow ai um ai if it ever comes to be which is not certain by the way Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people who talk about ai with this great inevitability and I'm not in that camp. Yeah, uh, I think it's plausible given what we know, but certain, even on a thousand-year timeline, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, natural or biological intelligences 
have a very limited capacity to fundamentally rework themselves. We deal with the constraints of a consciousness generated by the marvelous computer that is our brain. Um, but we don't, you know, have very limited capacity to change the way we think and feel, much less the fundamental ways that our brains operate. Whereas today, under the custodial care of human brains, artificial or digital intelligences are incredibly malleable. So if we ever get to the point where digital systems are able to analyze themselves and make changes to their structure, they would likely be able to do so much faster than evolution can do for us. And that presents a situation where AI could go from, you know, probably self-aware, but even not necessarily self-aware, but self-analyzing and self-modifying, and could go from some fraction of our intelligence to dramatically, unfathomably more intelligent than we are in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, because for, through code, motiva- code modifications, and then if AI gets smarter, gets a better understanding of physics, and can actually fabricate better processors to run its own software on, it's really curtains for humanity at that point. The problem is we have no ability to project what a digital superintelligence's motivations may be any more than an ant can understand Manhattan. <laughs> um, and only the difference in intelligence between an AI and us may actually be greater than the difference in intelligence between us and an ant. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's sort of a few possibilities that, that smart folks have thought about. One is that um, we create AI with an impetus to care for us and care for the world, and it basically solves our problems and frees us up from basic labor, and we just become these uh, well-fed artist philosophers. Uh, that's one scenario. Um, and then other scenarios are AI destroys us, but it probably wouldn't be a Terminator-style war. Uh, we would probably be destroyed by happenstance as AI was considering some much larger goal. Maybe it needs to convert the planet to rocket fuel, uh, including our bodies, in order to get some part of itself to some point in the galaxy we don't know about because it needs a material to avoid the heat death of the universe. Something completely like beyond our understanding. And then there's a middle ground where we tell AI, you've got to keep us happy. You got to protect the planet. So it puts us all in pods and stimulates the pleasure centers of our brain. And we're in like a really pleasant coma, uh, you know, being um, bred just to keep our genetic continuity going in line with the mandate of this super intelligence. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, A known unknown with unknown <laughs> unknowns, to use that uh, famous phraseology. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's the reason the smartest among us are saying we really need to hit a pause on some of this research and think carefully about how we proceed because we don't want an accidental AI arms race. Right. And I think that's wise. So um, what about... Um 
just kind of going through some other other transhumanist uh, topics of discussion. What about uh, cryonics? Is that something you've thought about? I have. I have thought about cryonics. What's your What's your feeling on that, or opinion on that? If people want to try it, great. Um, I wonder ethically if dramatically expending, extending human life is a thing we should do hmm. uh, because we need to create space for future lives. Right. Um, and we're seeing even right now like the kind of life expansion we've done for the baby boomers right. has led to a lot of limited opportunities for Generation X and millennials. Hmm. Um, and so now imagine a generation lives 500 years. <laughs> Uh, and population growth slows. Do people get stuck as middle managers or, or entry-level employees for, for 200 years? Hmm. Uh, so there's real implications to think about. Um, on the ethical side, I actually think the ethical side is more challenging than the technology. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I It's would... also really expensive, yeah. so it enables people of economic means to take a nap and wake up in the future uh, while people without means are, you know, they have to keep the planet going while the rich take frozen naps. <laughs> well, you know, I, um, I've said before, the, the idea of cryonics um, only makes sense if you are investing just as heavily or more heavily in making a better society because who do you think is going to thaw you in the, in the future you right. know right. um and that that like yeah nobody nobody's going to to do that unless um unless there is a future you know in in which um people are you know have, have a lot of of ability and have a lot of disposable resources. And, and what we're spending today on cryonics is nothing. Yeah. It's not detracting from any effort. But, uh, you know, if we were spending more on cryonics than income equality or poverty, yeah, I would be a real critic. But as it is today, it's just not... I'd love to see us spend more on income equality, economic inequality, and, and, and global poverty. Um but what we're spending on instead is like aircraft carriers, not, right, not, right. not cryonics. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Um, so, um, okay, space space travel. Are we are we going to hit um, another uh, solar system anytime soon? Are we going to expand into our solar system? Are we going to colonize Mars? What do you think on that front? I think expanding into our solar system in the next hundred years is very very likely mm -hmm. I think expanding to other solar systems in the next hundred years is near zero hmm. distances it's a huge issue other stars are very far away everyone's so excited right now about this Proxima B Earth like exoplanet Yeah, it's 24 trillion miles away <laughs> at the absolute fastest technology we have now if we invested like global if we created a one-world government and put 10% of our global domestic product, global gross domestic product, into building the most amazing spaceship craft we could build. 
what would it take? 20,000 years to get to Proxima B? <laughs> uh, we, would ha- we need a fundamentally different way of moving through space than we have to na- today. Uh, the, all, all space travel today is based on exhaust, is based on delta V, the amount and velocity of particles being expelled from a spacecraft. Mm-hmm. You have to carry your gas with you. You know, maybe we're going to build refueling stations in the asteroid belt and other parts in our solar system. Uh, but building a chain of, of space station gas stations between here and Alpha Centauri, uh, we don't even have a theoretical idea of how we would do that. So unless we come up with something like warp drive or or <laughs> the ability to create large wormholes, something like that, other solar systems are just out of our reach today. Now we could send robots. Yeah. If we started thinking very long term, we could certainly send, especially if we have AI, uh, twenty thousand years is no big deal. But for us, carbon based, brain based consciousnesses, uh, solar system is easy. The galaxy is hard. What would be some of the benefits of of uh, moving out into the solar system uh, in the near term? Life insurance in the most literal term possible. <laughs> we live on one planet. Uh, our biofilm is an extraordinarily thin layer on top of this uh, marble that we live on. Yeah. And we can foresee multiple events that make this not livable. A good asteroid strike, our tendency towards war and our capacity for nuclear weapons, there's any number of things which could eliminate the only self-aware, intelligent civilization creating life we know of. So I think there's an ethical obligation, it should be near the top of our global priority list, to populate other bodies with self-sustaining human colonies hmm. in our solar system. Hmm. I like Because we don't know. We don't know. We don't know if there's other life out there or not. If we're it, mm-hmm. um, I think we should try to preserve. I obviously think we should try to preserve human life, but I think we should try much harder. Uh, just in general, I think science would tell us our, our, our economic priorities are pretty pretty messed up hmm. we spend we overspend on militaries globally um, we overspend on consumerism globally we should be focused on poverty climate change and space hmm. I like it I if like we're thinking it. about <laughs> thousand year ten thousand year human flourishing if we're thinking about our kids we're, we're so focused us, our kids, maybe our grandkids. That's how our brains are developed. Yeah. We keep making perfect decisions for us and our kids, uh, but very poor decisions for the 100-year and 1,000-year timelines. Yeah. Do you think that we have... like? Ha- By the how- way, this is so my favorite interview I've ever done right here. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, I love- This is the stuff I want to talk about yeah. and never get to because I tell the same story every interview. <laughs> sure, yeah. Well, yeah, you work like I said. We're out on the kind of nerd fringe here, so uh, <laughs> we could keep going like this um, for a long, long time. Uh, 
So do, do you think that there are, um, I mean, do you think that there's any plausibility that we have um, the, that we're, that we'll be able to start thinking on even thousand year time frames? I mean, that's like you said, we're kind of biologically not adapted to that. Is there a way to do that? Yeah, I hope, uh, I think if it happens, it will be out of necessity. Hmm. I think about the time we have to evacuate Miami, America will have a serious conversation about climate change. Hmm. Wow. Now, by then, there's going to be so much carbon in the air that uh, that will just be the beginning of an evacuation. There's, you know, but maybe it will force us to make better decisions and won't lead to the collapse of civilization. That's what I hope. I hope yeah. that we uh, band together globally in, in the face of climate change, the way we banded together temporarily as a country yeah. post 9-11. Only this time, the enemy very much is ourselves and our propensity to burn stuff. Yeah. Um, but that, that's kind of what gives me. That could do it extraterrestrial contact could do it uh also figuring out that we were four years from an asteroid strike something like that hmm. uh but i think it will probably unfortunately given the way human brains work it will probably take crisis yeah and it will have to be such a crisis that it leaves a deeper mark on our collective psyche than something on the scale of world war ii wow because world war ii has given us about what's 70, 80 years apiece, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and it's already start, we're starting to fray a little bit. We're forgetting about that kind of collective trauma. Right. So to do something that reorients us over the long term, it will have to be, it will have to have the same global impact and global awareness that World War II did, but probably an even deeper hmm. level of trauma. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's. Huh, I'm, One of those I'm, times where I don't like my own belief. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I'm. Maybe uh, we can, you know, invent a warp drive or or some some kind of discontinuous uh, thing to to fix that. Do you think any kind of do you think religion can play a positive um, role in that? If we if we tried, yes. What what would be what what do <laughs> what do religious people or the religions of the world need to do to encourage that kind of positive um, action, do you think? Reorient our faith toward universal human flourishing, hmm. not the flourishing of our tribe. Hmm. Which is, if at, from certain readings, is really core to um, a lot of our faiths. Oh, I totally agree. I think it's a better read, even in its context, of the New Testament yeah. and even the prophets than most of what happens in the church today. Yeah. 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 I think, I think that's, um, you mentioned N.T. Wright and, and I think that you get some kind of, of a reorientation with, um, I just read his next book and it's, it's quite good. What, Oh, what is that next book? It's, uh, the day the revolution began. Oh, okay comes out in, I think, October. Wow. It's really good. So, yeah, people like him are kind of reorienting, um, I think, Christianity to say, you know, we, we need to be 
um, involved in redemptive purposes in the world, not, you know, kind of moving away from an escapism into this redemptive um, understanding or redemptive framing of, of our role. And I think that can be very important. I think Richard Rohr does the same thing. Hmm. It's interesting. Some of these like really old guard Orthodox guys right. have some of the freshest thinking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, like a lot of a lot of the young younger guys, we put like rock and roll clothes on right. the same evangelicalism, right? And those guys are are playing a different game. Yeah, well, and you know, from from the kind of more orthodox traditions, you you do have this kind of mindset of of uh, a, a longer game, sort of, you know, a a, a bigger historical horizon, um, and. I think it's I think it's interesting the way that you see kind of um, divergence sometimes between conservative Catholics and conservative evangelicals. Um, and I think a lot of it comes down to Catholics um, are per- sometimes operating on a more global um, framework than kind of American evangelicals sometimes are. Mm. So. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think I I do think that's that's interesting the the differences you get from from different areas. But I I'm I'm like you. I find a lot of of good stuff to be from kind of the orthodox wing of things. <laughs> so so yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm hopeful that that uh, we can do something better than than waiting for Miami to to sink beneath the waves but uh, uh, um, that's I do wonder if we'll like full-on evacuate Miami or if it will become kind of like a Venice like city oh yeah I've thought about that a lot lately because hmm. there already there's neighborhoods in Miami that they just can't get the water out of yeah and they brought in these uh, engineers uh, from Europe to talk about um, building dikes and uh they were like we can't your city's on a sponge it's on limestone so we can build walls around it but the water will just come up through the ground which is what's happening yeah uh pretty wild stuff wow well um yeah i'm let's i'm finding god in the waves and the oceanification (laughs) of miami (laughs) christian transhumanist podcast that's right we're tying it all together here um (laughs) I like it. Um, well, I, I I definitely agree with you about um, you know let's let's go towards human flourishing and let's go towards um, you know colonizing our, our solar system, building some life insurance. I like I like that idea. Um, so I know you're on uh, you're you're kind of doing a bit of a book tour right now. Where can people find out more information about you or find out where you're going to be? You can learn all about me and the book on findinggodinthewaves.com mm-hmm. um, and then if you want to learn about where I'm going to be just go to findinggodinthewaves.com slash tour and that's got a list of all the cities we have a few more dates to announce but it's a pretty good list already uh, should in the next couple of days have, have like uh, a New York date announced and a few other places but we're getting close to locked in on the tour cool. and I'll be going all over uh, and also working on a um UK tour right now because the book comes out in the UK in October. Oh, wow. Awesome. Well, I'll put links to all that in the show notes as well as uh, your podcast, Ask Science Mike and the Liturgist. Um, and 
I will uh, definitely, I know you're coming to Nashville in October and I'll look forward to seeing you then, but thanks for the conversation. Thanks for talking this out and um, yeah, just uh, let's, let's do it again sometime. We can, uh, we transhumanists have all kinds of interesting questions to ask. (laughs) Right on. That sounds great. Thanks so much. Yeah. Talk to you later. Bye.